Good morning. Good morning. I know. You give you another chance. Good morning. Well, this place has been alive with worship. Uh, really, so look forward to just be with my Christian family week by week. And we're in this exciting series that reminds us that um, Jesus is walking among his church. That what we do here at CLC, it's not a human enterprise. It's not for us to manage. Um, I used to have people ask me, did you ever take a course in seminary on how to run the church? And it's like, oh, I'm so glad that's not my job. <laughs> that Jesus is walking among his churches. And sometimes we get a little intimidated by this book of Revelation because there's all these conspiracy theories that try to label uh, different elements of the book of Revelation to what's going on now. And as soon as those books get published, they are outdated. Uh, I remember uh, we're, we got married in 1988, and we were, as we were engaged, there was a book, 88 Reasons Jesus is Coming Back in 88, uh, and I was praying against that book so hard. <laughs> I wanted to get married. Um, but all, all those books have short shelf life. What we see in the book of Revelation is that center to the whole book uh, is Jesus' care for his church. In the midst of a world in which there are evil forces, you've got... Uh, the beast and the dragon, which are the forces of brutality and violence in our world. Uh, and the church was being hunted down and persecuted. We're going to see that in our text this morning. Uh, you've got forces of corruption coming into the church uh, and the temptress of, of the church going down. And the, the dragon and the beast are countered um, by the gentleness of the lamb. The one who is the Lion of Judah, but, he, but he, he reigns on a throne and he appears as a lamb. And the lamb and his followers win the victory. That's the message of the book of Revelation. It's almost best understood the way it was given originally. You know, they received it as one letter that was meant to be read aloud. That's what chapter 1 verse 3 says. Blessed is the one who reads it and blessed are those who hear. And it would have, it would have hit you almost like if you've ever had a series of bad dreams. Maybe you ate some bad lasagna or something. And you just have this series of cascading, crazy dreams. It's how it hit John with, with the beast and Babylon and the temptress and then this lamb who conquers without the use of violence or coercion through all of his faithful followers. And, and central in this are seven letters to seven churches. Uh, written by the Apostle John. He's the last surviving apostle. He's the only one who wasn't martyred. Uh, there's legends, can't substantiate that he was attempted to be uh, martyred and put down and he didn't die. And so then they decided, well, we're just gonna exile this old man. And as he's praying on the first day of the week, on the first day of the week, this man, he's so full of love for Jesus. He's praying uh, in the spirit and Jesus appears to him in this vision and the vision lists all these incredible attributes of Jesus and in the seven letters it chooses certain of those attributes to apply to the exact situation of comfort that's needed and in, in virtually every one of these letters he has a word of commendation here's where you're doing awesome church and then he has following that up he has a word of confrontation saying hey here's where I need to be welcomed in to bring change and then he has a word finally out of that of consolation and of comfort and we come to um, this letter to this church and it has all three of those um, and this is the church at Pergamon Pergamon was a religious spiritual center um, and we're going to see more about how it was just all surrounded by, you had to kind of pass through um, false spirituality to the gods. It was, it was even a medical center, uh, and they had a medical temple to Asclepius, uh, and Asclepius was uh, a famous medical uh, arts place in the ancient Near Eastern world, uh, but to get healed, get this, to get healed, they often... Uh, used snakes and so if you had a, a malady you had to you know like take your shirt off and let snakes crawl all over your back for some of you are like man well if it didn't heal me it would drive me crazy right <laughs> and so every point of of contact uh, was prefaced with these gods and they were living in a very very difficult place and so um Maybe you live in a difficult place. Maybe you're aware of the evil and challenges of the world. Um, this is going to be a powerful word for you this morning. So uh, let's uh, now pay attention as we hear and read the very word of God. 
He says to the angel of the church in Pergamum, right? Um, These are the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you are living, where Satan's throne is. Yet you were holding fast to my name and you did not deny your faith in me even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one who was killed among you where Satan lives. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the people of Israel so that they would eat food, sacrifice to idols and practice fornication. So you also have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent then. If not, I will come to you soon and make war against them with the sword of my mouth. Let anyone who has ear listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. To everyone who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna and I will give a white stone and on the white stone is written a new name that no one, that a new name that no one knows except the one who receives it. Let us pray. Father, we pray thanking you for your amazing word that you meet us where we are, that you walk among us And we pray that we might open our hearts and our minds and our ears to receive that particular word that you would speak to us. Uh, We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Jesus begins, uh, and he says, to the angel, and again, whether these churches had actually literal messengers or angels or whether that was what the pastor was understanding, we don't know, but there was a transmission uh, of the very words of Christ to particular churches. And this church at Pergamon receives, the first thing they receive is that they are receiving a letter from the one who has the sharp two-edged sword. What we know from the ancient world is the Pergamon's um, symbol was a two-edged sword. And the reason for that, we think, is because it was a rare city that the, the Roman emperors, as, as having dominated it, gave the authority for the, that city to, uh, de, to place upon people a sentence of execution. That particular city had what few Roman cities had, and if they felt that someone was out of line, they could execute them immediately. And so they had the authority of the double-edged sword. And here Jesus is saying, uh-uh, I have all authority. He really is confronting the church and he's saying, not only in your idea, who has ultimate authority in your life? Who has ultimate power? Who has the power to ultimately either comfort or threaten you? And Jesus is saying, uh-uh, I am the ultimate authority. I am ultimate Lord. That is, that is a freeing and a challenging word to us. And Jesus here first says, the one who is speaking these words to you uh, is the one who has all authority. And you know, there's often the, the answer to that question that we would say functionally, Jesus has ultimate authority. Uh, or, or theoretically, he has ultimate authority. And I think what he's saying here is who functionally right now has the greatest weight over your well-being, over your anxieties, over the things you are most concerned about, over the things that keep you up at night? Jesus is saying, I have that authority. Because they lived in a city where they had witnessed actually one who actually had, had paid that highest price. And this is what we see in the first words, Jesus says, I know where you live. This is different than all the other letters. All the other letters, Jesus says, I know your faithfulness, your perseverance, your good works. And here, this is really very comforting. He says, I know where you live. And it's a hard place. I don't know what that might be for you, what you feel most threatened by, what you feel is most difficult, but Jesus here is showing himself so sympathetic to them. He says, I I know where you're living. And he says, you live where Satan's throne is. Now, we know um, literally, and and I looked at different pictures of the ruins because we we have pictures of the ruins of what was called Satan's throne. This kind of, 
Uh, Pergamum is among this rocky shelf. It isn't a coastal city, but it's very much embedded in a mountain and protected. And they built this incredible pantheon to all these Roman gods. Uh, And they had this specific throne that was seen as as the very throne of, of all the pagan gods. And this throne is actually, has actually excavated um, and by the Germans um, century before Adolf Hitler or so, uh, but Adolf Hitler paid particular attention to it and it is housed in the Museum of Pergamum uh, in Germany. And, and I don't wanna go all spooky, spiritual, crazy on you, but I think it is a testimony of, of history because of what happened later in that country under the Third Reich and because of Hitler's particular attention. And there's some legend, I've tried to substantiate this, but, uh, and, but saw reference in many places that Hitler wanted his, his podium and his platform to be designed after this particular throne of Satan. And I think at least it is a warning to us uh, of not opening our spirits and our minds and our cultures to the things of Satan because of what uh, can come through that portal and what can come through that doorway. And so there actually is, I mean, in Berlin, in a museum, uh, this kind of throne, Satan's throne. And here's the reality. Um, we pray to a God who is not limited in his throne. He doesn't have a particular resident. He, he doesn't take up as a physical presence and then say, well, I'm here, and if he's here, he can't be there. Um, Satan is a limited creature. <laughs> he is not the opposite of God. He's just the opposite of uh, a high angel, Michael. Uh, and so he has to have a place of residence. And, um, you know, you can make conjectures as to where his throne may be on the earth, where his center of operations is, you know, where he did these things like create telemarketers and create, um, you know, the internet or whatever, you know, uh, whatever you, your nemesis may be. But he, he is limited uh, and yet he is more powerful than us, but he is nowhere near as powerful as God. And he's got to have a center of operations. And I, I think it's good for us to not think of Satan as just like, you know, the devil on one shoulder and the angel on the other shoulder and all about personal temptation. No, he has got a, he's got a cosmic evil plan. And he is seeking through propaganda, through networks, through international interweaving of all kinds of malice, to carry out his plan. He is real. And here, Scripture affirms that he had a headquarters in the Roman Empire in this city of Pergamum. And believers in the church had to deal with that. They had to live in the face of that kind of evil. And so he says, you are living where Satan's throne is, yet you are holding fast my name. There's There's a kind of fearlessness to that. And he says, you did not deny your faith in me even in the days of Antipas, my witness. Now again, we don't have a lot of details about this. All all I can imagine is think of uh, someone at CLC that you know. If you're you're part of the family of CLC or maybe you're in another church and you think, think of a faithful, prominent person that you know who walks with Jesus and they were snatched out of that fellowship or maybe they were going about their work and their life. Maybe they were simply minding their own business in their own house or backyard, and one day they were snatched. Because that was the context they lived in. They were snatched by the government, and the government said, renounce Jesus. Uh, The emperor at that day was Domitian. Domitian was uh, the first emperor to demand that people worship him, and he declared himself to be Lord and Savior. And so in this context, uh, where they were, the, the Roman Empire was demanding allegiance. Uh, they sometimes would pluck individuals and force them, if they wanted to keep their life, to put an inch, uh, a pinch of incense on the altar to declare their fealty to the Roman Emperor. And evidently this happened to Anubis. There, there are different accounts, um, but they're later, so it's hard to know whether they were conjured up by um, imagination or real, but we know from the word of God here um, that he paid the ultimate price. He was willing to be faithful unto death. He could not deny what he had actually seen, but imagine the impact of that. You're in a, a congregation, 
Christianity is being persecuted, so we don't have you know, steeples in a public building that says, come all, they're huddled in homes, huddled in secret places. And you know that one of the faithful, most loving, Jesus-shaped individuals had been snatched up and forced to pay the ultimate price, and then you have to step out the next day and live true to who Jesus is, step by step. That's, that's why he says, you live where Satan lives. And I know you are, you are holding fast. Um, we know some years later in a Turkish city of Smyrna, uh, there is a famous and very reliable account of the martyrdom of Polycarp. It happened through a, a different Roman emperor, but um, Polycarp was 86 years old and the police were sent by the Roman emperor to tell him he must renounce his faith. And when the police came, Polycarp had word that they were coming. And this is how godly Polycarp dealt with the police. He basically prepared a banquet and a table. And he said, by the way, I, I thought you were coming, so I prepared a feast for you. Um, and then he said, I, all I'm gonna ask of you, I just want a little time to pray. And so he prayed aloud publicly. He prayed for all of them. Uh, he prayed for their families. Uh, he, he prayed broadly for, for all these things. And, and as they carried him off to give him that ultimatum, you must declare your allegiance to the Roman emperor uh, or you will be killed, they begged him. Um, uh, the, the chief police officer said, look, what would it hurt for you, just, just a little pinch of incense, just to say that, you know, you give, give a place of divine honor to the emperor. <laughs> he says, just take of that little oath and I will let you go. Um, and when that didn't work, when Polycarp said, how can I blaspheme the king who saved me? Uh, they began to threaten him. They said, you know, we have wild animals, we'll throw you to them unless you change your mind. And Polycarp said, call them in. Call them in because we are not allowed to change from something better to something worse. <laughs> scorn, he says, scorn the wild beast and I'll have you burned alive if you don't change your mind. And Polycarp said this, he says, you threaten with a fire that burns for a short time and is soon quenched. You don't know about the fire, the coming judgment and eternal punishment that awaits the wicked. Why are you now waiting? Just do what you will. And, he, and Polycarp radiated this courage and joy as he was being threatened. And the whole crowd then eventually gathered around him as they asked him to recant his faith in Jesus as the unique Lord. And as he refused, the mob began to turn against him, the mob of the crowd. Uh, and uh, Polycarp um, made a famous speech and a famous stand uh, as he uh, faced this intimidation. Uh, and he, he said this, 80 and six years have I served him and he has done me no wrong. How can I turn uh, against this God? And they threatened to bound him and, and burn him. And they said that those who witnessed saw a man who went out with anticipation and radiance and joy. He did not renounce his faith. And that is the medal of what these Christians were born of. This happened some years later in Smyrna, but this was what they were facing and Jesus says, I know that you are faithful in fighting the forces of the world outside of you. Tremendous commendation. <laughs> I don't know that any one of us knows exactly how we would face that kind of hour, that kind of intimidation. But what I do know is that kind of intimidation is happening around the world. I was in South Asia in December, and many of you were praying for me and aware of that, I met individuals who faced the specter of a government that might as well hunt them down, evict them from their houses, create, they created whole masses of refugees that are pouring out of North India because police go in and say, renounce the faith. They throw their Bibles in rivers and uh, they force them out of their homes into homelessness. They evict them from their professions and occupations unless they will renounce Jesus Christ as unique Lord. They don't mind if they say that he is a Lord. They don't mind if he says he is a God, but to say that he is God of God, very God of very God, the ultimate and only God and creator, that is what they cannot stand. And it is going on around our world today. And these Christians stood faithful. They were in the, in the hottest part of the furnace, right where Satan lives. 
And that's what it makes all the more remarkable what Jesus confronts them with. He says, but I have a few things against you. They were faithfully standing against the threat of the world, but, but they were, and I think perhaps unaware that they, had, they were guilty of some compromise in that he says they had some there among their congregation, their fellowship, again, think huddled in a home, not a building like this, who were holding to the teaching of Balaam um, uh, and who were also, the next verse says, holding to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Uh, these two uh, teachings would have been very understood to them. Balaam means to have something else rule over you as Lord. Nicolaitans, uh, which is the next verse, if you think of Nike, victory, uh, and, of being conquered. Uh, and it was a foreign idea that basically allowed other things than the lordship of Jesus Christ to have uh, dominion over your life and your body in particular. And there was a teaching that what you did with your body didn't really matter and it was, it was diverting what it looked like to follow Jesus. And so Jesus says, I, I have this against you. You are, you are operating in the opposite direction of me. You are representing me in the wrong way. I, I think of this, I don't know if you've ever heard this, this kind of uh, meme or game, but it says like, what, what would you have to post on the internet or text uh, to maybe your spouse or your loved one to communicate, I am, I am being held hostage by terrorists and I do not have my free will? What would you have to text to say that? So, so for someone like uh, Christian Hessling, um, if he were being held by hostage by a terrorist against his will, I would expect to get a text saying something like, hey, Bob, um, could you get me a Dallas Cowboys jersey or, or, or uh, you know, a Patriots jersey? Um, I, I'm no longer interested in the Philadelphia Eagles. Or maybe from Christian, it would be something like, um, hey, Bob, um, I'm selling my Harley Davidson um, and I, I want to get a moped. Um, you know, something like that, right? Um, you know, I don't know, for, for me, it, it would, it, if I were texting my wife to say, hey, I'm, I'm in trouble, I'm, I'm held under forces making me do the opposite, it'd be something like, hey, hon, um, I'm taking the dog to the pound, I've had enough. That, she would know, uh, something's happened to my husband, right? Or, or hey, hon, could you uh, go to Home Depot and get some Roundup uh, and, and get some, some, you know, industrial strength weed killer to get rid of the dandelions? Like, then she'd know, like, something happened to my husband, right? And, and here's the reality. Jesus is looking at his church and he's walking among the lampstands and he's looking for his own reflection and he's saying, I am seeing something that is, has invaded that church, invaded those people's lives, calling them to look so unlike me. It, it's so important that we understand Jesus is not like this theological nitpicker with a list trying to play gotcha with us and say, oh, they got some wrong ideas about me. He, he's not looking at minutia. He's looking at big things that actually are tripwires that are going to set us in motion to live in a way that is entirely opposite to him. So, so just as offensive as it would be for Christian, if I, you know, I thought about having a picture of him like photo adapted, right, in a Dallas Cowboys jersey or Patriots jersey, you know, or, or trashing his Harley Davidson or me kicking my beloved dog who I love more than anybody ought to love another animal, right? It's just crazy, you know. But to go the opposite direction is offensive because there is a more beautiful vision of you and me that Jesus has and he wants to break our embrace of those things and it starts with what we believe, we, we believe uh, in the, the inconsequential nature of beliefs. We don't really believe that beliefs are that important. There, ten, there tends to be, at least in our society as a whole, people say that, you know, what you believe, oh, to each his own. You know, que sera, sera. <laughs> um, you know, you do you. Yeah. Jesus loves us too much for that. <laughs> Jesus is saying, I, you know, the idea I have of you is a you that reflects your ultimate best. You know, and, and so like this is, this is kind of tolerance, weak tolerance 
acting like it's love in the body. And, and Jesus is alerting them that they are allowing something into the body, into the congregation that threatens its very essence. If, you, know, you can imagine it this way. Like imagine if you went into a, a really fine hospital, you're getting a procedure done or a family member is getting a procedure done and all of a sudden you, you smell cigarette smoke. And you realize like they have a smoking section and actually the doctors and nurses come out. I'm not picking on smokers, but I'm just saying, we just say like, what happened to enforcement of standards, right? The, and, and here Jesus is saying, look, there, there's, I think there's so much pressure on us culturally to say, okay, I don't want to be a busybody. I don't want to mind other people's business. I don't want to force people, let people make it. And Jesus is saying, no, no, it is. If, if you love someone, tolerance is passive. Love is active. Tolerance will let people just go the way. Tolerance will let someone cut the ropes of their wrath when you know a waterfall is on the other side of that. That's what tolerance will do. Love will say, I plead with you, don't cut the ropes from your wrath and go down that waterfall. It will break you. And, and so Jesus is calling the church here to, to a kind of holy intolerance because of, of what was going to, to happen if they followed this path. And this is why he says, you, you have a few who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. We, we know in part that was basically saying what you do with your body, what you do sexually, that doesn't matter. You think of, we're gonna look especially at that next week at his letter to Thyatira. But Jesus is saying, I, I can love you. I can walk among you. And, and here's the scary thing. We can be so good at fighting the forces outside of us. Like saying, we're not letting the world in. We're, we can be so good at doing battle against all those and then somehow completely compromise and be traitors within the theater of our own hearts. Man, I'll tell you, I've, as I've thought about these verses, it hits me. Like, like I, I can repent of other people's sins really well. Hey, these are the sins that don't tempt me. These are the sins of the world. These are the things I don't believe in. Yeah, I can articulate really well. But then what about the things that whisper seductively to me? And that's what happened in the confines of this, this church body. They, they had relaxed their vigilance and they had allowed these things to come in. Um, and so look at this word of grace. What Jesus says is Repent. Repent then. Uh, and, and he says, repent for the sake of other people. He says, if you don't repent and alert them to what they are doing, to say, like, these are really destructive ideas. I'm asking you to be a spokesman for me and, and grab them by the lapels and say, no, it, this is not okay. This is not a victimless crime. This is gonna do you damage. He's saying, he says, repent or I will come and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He's speaking of the, the power of his word, but he's saying that there are sins and that Jesus has to oppose because it's simply who he is. And he gives this word of grace, which says, I'm not asking you to clean it up or some heroic, I'm just asking you to change your mind and think like I do about this. And, and, and be willing, you know, don't be that person who just says, you know, if it's not in my backyard, I don't care. But, but be that person who says, I care enough to have the conversation. Have the conversation. Have it in love. When it's something of this level, we're not talking about minutia. We're talking about the kind of thing that changes the narrative of people's story of their entire life. We're talking about those big ticket items. And Jesus is saying, you cannot, you cannot sit this one out. And so then he has this word of comfort to them. He says, let anyone who has an ear listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. I love this. Listen to what the Spirit is saying. The Word of God is, it's living, it's active. It's not a history book. You don't blow the dust off of it. It doesn't have dust, it's living. It comes after you. God's words reach out after us when we open ourselves to them. And, and here he says, to everyone who conquers. And here he's saying, to the one who overcomes what the world is saying to them and what the world is tempting us to be. He says, to everyone who conquers, I'm offering these, and there, there's three consolations here. And this is so personal. These, this may be one of the most exquisitely, personally encouraging sections in the entire Bible. It is the resurrected Christ speaking to a church congregation, but now he speaks in the singular to individuals. He's speaking to singular individuals, to everyone, to every individual, 
to anyone who will open their eyes to his spirit. And he says this, I, will, I have hidden manna to give you. Uh, now, what is manna? Manna was the thing that sustained God's people when they were faced by a howling wilderness where there was no nutrients whatsoever. And it was that which came directly from heaven to feed God's people. Uh, and it was something that had to be received and gathered day by day. And it was the direct sustenance of God. And here he says, I will give you some of the hidden manna. I, I will give you what is a mysterious source of resilience. I will feed you. Does anybody here this morning feel like, I need resilience. I need reinforcement. I, I need something in my spirit that fortifies me. Jesus says, I, will, I have this, and I am ready in a personal way to be your waiter, <laughs> to be the one who brings it to you, to give you some of the hidden manna in this, in this intimate place of strengthening. And, and then he says, um, I will give that person a white stone. Now this, this again, I want you to see the, what we know, what you just know from just looking at this text without any interpretation at all, is this is a very intimate exchange. Um, so he's got, you know, a white stone. I don't know how big the white stone is. Got some white stones here. Um, but here he's saying, I, I have a white stone to give. And, a, you know, there's interpreters I've found all kinds of interesting research about this. Uh, some have said the white stone uh, was uh, a wealthy person's, you know, admittance to a Colosseum event. So I think like, you know, hey man, this is, this is your ticket to the most privileged concert or sporting event, whatever, whatever you love to say. This, this is what gets you in. This is admittance. Uh, others pointed out that um, juries, uh, would give their votes by either uh, issuing black stones or white stones. Um, this is where the phrase, you know, being blackballed, um, declared guilty, and Jesus here is saying, I will give you the stone of the not guilty verdict. I will give you the stone that you are, you are justified, you are righteous. And, and note that he says, it's not something we've earned, it's something that he gives to us. We don't merit it. We don't earn it. We don't deserve it. I will give you this, this white stone. And, on the, and what he says next is, on this white stone is written a new name that no one knows except the one who receives it. That is such an intimate thing. It, it is speaking of Jesus knows the weight of our griefs. There are Proverbs that say that no one else knows our griefs, but, but we know. We know how they impact us. You know, we never can say to a person who's lost someone, you can say, I know exactly what you're going through because we don't. But we do know someone who does and his name is Jesus. He knows our griefs. He knows our hearts. He knows our hurts, our hangups. He knows where we beat ourselves up all the time. He knows the things that trigger us uh, and defeat us. And he says, I'm coming and he, I'm writing an, a name there. It's some kind of unique intimacy. He's offering us resilience in form of the hidden manna to strengthen us, but then he's offering us this intimacy and this beauty, you know, that the, the way love means something to us is not when people who don't know us love us, but it's when someone who really deeply knows us and sees us and says, I see everything about you and I adore you. I love you. This is this is the most powerful form of love. And Jesus is saying, I see you. I know you. I know all of your faults. I know your fickleness. I know your frailty. I know where you relapsed yesterday. I know every failure. And as you conquer through me, I have a white stone with your name and a particular dialogue that we have. I was talking to someone in this congregation who, who this has been a favorite verse of. And they were just telling me that this, these verses were a source of sustenance when they were walking through one of the greatest challenges that we could face. And, and they needed to pull aside in solitude because here's the reality. We don't do Jesus and faith and life in a group ultimately. I'm not saying a group doesn't help us. I get to know him so much by the way you know him and you know him and you know him. But ultimately when push comes to shove, um, when all of these things come against us in a way that we feel the heaviness of it, we have to know Jesus personally and directly. 
Um, the evangelist George Whitfield used to say it this way. He says, what is Christ to me if Christ is not mine? Um, you know, this is why <laughs> the Lord is my shepherd doesn't say the Lord is our shepherd. It's, a, it's because when we pass through the valley of the shadow of death, we've got to know that he is my shepherd. There will come a time where we are all alone. I don't know what it will be, but there will come that time where we are face to face and Jesus here is saying, the one who conquers, I, I have encouragement. I have hidden manna to get you through it. He doesn't say, by the way, I will never give you more than you can bear. That's not what he says. <laughs> and anybody who's lived very long, anybody who's been a pastor knows that is one of the worst lies. He does give us more than we can bear all the time to push us out into the presence of the one who says, I have hidden manna for you. Of course you can't bear it. I have a white stone with an intimacy that only you know. I can tell you, I, I was just, I was blessed this week, deep in my soul thinking about times where I have felt a grief or discouragement of a, or a burden that I don't think anybody else really know. Liz, my best, most intimate friend, she, yeah, she's with me, she, but she doesn't know exactly how it hit me. I know she's gone through times where I don't know exactly how these things hit her. But what we do know is we know a Jesus who knows us and he is there actually tending to us in that personal way. And so my burden this morning is simply say, do you know this Jesus in this way and have you let him in? That, that's his burden uh, we, we began this worship service saying that we are under the care of the great shepherd of our souls. I, I love that. I love that as a pastor that the only pastor we ultimately have who is the ultimate pastor is Jesus because he is the only perfect pastor. The best other pastors are just mainly sheep. <laughs> We're mainly stupid sheep trying to shepherd others under his name. But Jesus is perfect. And in the midst of our darkest, deepest, lowest hour, he comes and he says, I want to feed you. I want to encourage you with how much you're loved. I want to have a conversation with you in a language that only you and I can understand. And, I, and I've written this name on it. And he says, no one else is going to even know. No one else is going to even be able to understand um, what this means except you who receive it. Have you received it? Do you let Jesus in in that way? That's, that's the offering and encouragement. And it's, it's out of this passage that I think it's so appropriate that we are celebrating the Lord's Supper this morning. And I wanna, I wanna pose that question to you. Is there anything you're aware of that you have let in? You may be valiantly standing against the forces outside, but is there anything you have let in a practice, a settled resignation into some temptation, a place where Satan has told you, okay, stop confessing that sin anymore. You've confessed it too many times. You're gonna just live with that. Is there any of those things? Jesus, as you're coming to him, he says, let those things go again in my name. Renounce them before me. Is there any discouragement, any grief that you've not let Jesus in personally? This is, this is the kind of sermon that, yeah, we come into the Lord's table. I want to just encourage you, if you feel that, I pray you feel that impulse to say, I want to get alone with Jesus today. I, I, want, I, need, I need face to face, I need to get alone with this one who has a conversation that is perfectly calibrated and customized for me in my life. That's how good he is. And so let's bow together in prayer. Father, thank you for this text. Thank you for this being the God who you are. And we pray that you would linger with us and minister out of your presence that truly the Lord's Supper, the broken body and the poured out blood of Jesus coming to us through the bread and the cup would be a powerful source and a powerful infusion of your presence. And that, Lord, you would just linger in this conversation with you, we pray in Jesus' name. And now, I want to invite you to take the prayer of confession upon your lips and heart. This prayer of confession nearly flows out of this um, passage. And let's make this our prayer. I invite you to pray it. Our great God and Heavenly Father, 
We have sinned times without number and have been guilty of pride and unbelief and of neglect to seek you in our daily lives. Our sins and shortcomings present us with a list of accusations, but we thank you that they will not stand against us, for all have been laid on Christ. Deliver us from every evil habit, every interest of former sins, everything that dims the brightness of your grace in us, everything that prevents us taking delight in you. Amen. And our God promises if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just, not only to forgive us of our sins, but to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. And then I invite you, this really is the basis of being admitted to this table. It's humbly acknowledging our sin and placing our confidence in God. And I, I love this statement of these 12 articles of faith, but I think the most important word may be, I believe in, because it shows this is your personal faith in God. And so I invite you, if, if you would, stand and confess with me with the church around the world and down through the ages. Believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, what do you believe? I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Please be seated. It's on that basis that I welcome you to the Lord's table. It is his table. It is not the table of CLC. It is not the table of any local church. It is his table. And so if you live in humble reliance on Jesus as the savior of your sins, if you confess the clear heart and mind, faith in those articles of the Apostles' Creed, in that God, if that God is your God, then by all means come and receive the reinforcement of the God who loves you so exquisitely and beautifully. On the night he was betrayed, our Lord took the bread, and after giving thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Take and eat in remembrance of me. And in the same way, our Lord took the cup and he said, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood, shed for the forgiveness of the sins of many. I'll invite our servers if they would come forward now. And on this side, we practice intinction, the dipping of the bread in the cup. And on this side, there's separate bread and cup that is gluten-free. And come as you were led by the Spirit, face-to-face -face with our Lord. There's hope for the hopeless, 
And all those who strayed, come sit at the table. Come taste the grace. There's rest for the weary, a rest that endures. Earth has no sorrow that heaven can To lay down your burdens, lay down your shame. And all who are broken, lift up your face. To lay down your love. 
What a great Savior we have. How awesome is he? Lift up your hearts to him. Now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, and the fellowship and communion of his Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. Amen.